0: This message first aired on the radio on December 22nd, 2003. We're on Romans chapter 9. We'll turn to the 19th verse. And we have a very misunderstood and a very controversial portion of Scripture. And well, like we usually find out, all the problems that we're having in this portion of Scripture, middle of Romans 19, beginning of the 19th verse, all the way to the end, we're going to find out the problems are ours and not God's. And this is a particular problem we're going to see today. We're going to see the problem of being high minded and overstretching our own ability because we're overrated. We overrate ourselves. That's something that we do, it's something all people do. I'm following the college football, if there is college football left. I don't know if college football has ended as I know it, it's possible. Because I'm from Nebraska here, and I began listening to football in 1962 on my transition to radio every Saturday afternoon when there was a Saturday afternoon paper. And I think football as I know it has ended. Maybe it ended a few years ago. But in any case, there's a big controversy over who gets to rate somebody highly, and everybody thinks that they're underrated. You don't ever hear anybody complaining that they're overrated. They're always underrated. Notice that. People in California who are passing by football for a little while here on their way to the beach claim that their football team is underrated, not overrated, but underrated, because they only lost one game in overtime to a team that barely has a winning record. But everybody has a reason why they're underrated. Well, here in the Bible, we find out the truth about ourselves. Maybe that's why we don't read it. We find out that we're overrated. And we think too highly of ourselves, and we're arrogant in our minds, and we're boastful in our minds. Arrogant thoughts. And that characterizes everything that the world has, everything that we learn in the world. Well, let's turn to the Scripture and and see about that mind a little bit. The context of the 19th verse is our last study, which was the 18th verse and so forth. 17 and 18 of Romans 9, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now, who raised up Pharaoh to be the mightiest ruler in the earth during his day? And this particular Pharaoh, by the way, this is another Pharaoh, or a Pharaoh of a different kind than the Egyptian Pharaoh who was so kind to Joseph and to his family as to give them the land of Goshen and to shield them from the hatred of the Egyptians because they were shepherds. Egyptians didn't like shepherds, and they were cow people. Cow people and sheep people don't get along all that well, and that's part of the enmity that's in the heart of man and the the wickedness of man is that cow people, like the Egyptians, didn't get along with sheep people like the Israelites were, and the king knew that, and he knew Joseph, and he's very fond of Joseph because Joseph saved the nation of Egypt during the Great Famine, and therefore... Because of their prudent action in the face of famine, they became the most powerful nation on earth, not literally overnight, but certainly over seven years. And let that be a lesson, the nation that follows the counsels of God becomes a mighty nation, and it can happen very quickly. Well, in any case, there arose another pharaoh. This is a pharaoh of a different kind. In fact, he was of different nationality. This is the Assyrian came in from assyria he came into egypt and he overtook egypt and the assyrian came in he didn't know joseph as it is he had no regard for joseph or for his people and that is how for 400 years israel was mistreated in the land of egypt now who who raised that guy up you know who raised up saddam hussein in iraq who raised up hitler in germany who raised up mussolini in italy who raised up these uh, ogres as we decide they are. Who raised up Muammar Gaddafi in Libya? Well, God did. And uh, you don't like to hear that, and maybe I don't like to hear it, but God raises up kings and he puts them down. Who put George Bush in office? Who put Bill Clinton in office? Well, God did. Say, well, we vote, we have a democracy. Who are you kidding? I mean, this is the same folly where people think they can vote themselves wealth. They believe they can vote themselves power. You think you can vote yourself power, why don't you pass a law that the sun won't rise tomorrow and see how you do? Or pass that it rises from the west and sets in the east. You want to see some power. Or just pass a law that the sun stands still. God stood the sun still. And by the way, don't you buy the Herodian leaven that is out there. The Herodian leaven is that by political means we can achieve the purposes of God. That's the leaven of Herod. It's leaven, it's a false doctrine. But the leaven of Herod has its own appeal. The leaven of the Pharisees has its own appeal. The leaven of the scribes has its own appeal. Leaven of the scribes, that's the appeal to the university. Leaven of the Pharisees, that's the religious appeal. That's the one that's in most of the pulpits today. The leaven of the Herodians, now that's the one you hear everywhere you turn. And the leaven of the Herodians is that by, by political action we can achieve the purposes of God. And I'm so tired of people telling me that it is my Christian responsibility to vote that I think I'm going to get sick if I hear it again. There is nowhere in the Scripture that says it's my Christian responsibility to vote for anybody ever. It is my Christian responsibility to pray for everyone in authority. In authority. Now, what I find Christians doing is running for office, saying that this is their responsibility, that it's my responsibility to vote for somebody because he's a Christian. And let me just ask you, let's just say that you are in an airplane and you have a choice of pilots, and we have one pilot that he's been a derelict for the last five years, but he is a skilled pilot. Now, he's been a derelict, let's just say he's a philanderer with other women, He he drinks too much frequently, he extorted his friend for money, all manner of evil, but he's a skilled pilot. On the other hand, you have a Christian who's been a devout Christian, a blameless guy, elder in his church, true elder, never flown a plane in his life. Who do you want flying that plane? Well, me, give me the derelict, because he has the skill for it. What I'm saying by that, friends, is that you cannot judge the quality of everything by whether there's a Christian behind it. We are sanctified and set apart by God, but we have no ability to sanctify. God sets us apart, but we do not have power in ourselves to do anything like that. And so just because someone is a Christian does not qualify them for a particular skill or matter— And just because you're Christian doesn't mean that you should be running the school board or running the city of Omaha or or anything like that. Now, all things being equal, let me tell you, I would appreciate all things being equal that the man is saved and has a sense of Christ's morality. But let me back off a little bit and just say this. It is not our responsibility to do what the Bible doesn't tell us to do. It is our responsibility to pray. And that's the thing we don't do. That's the thing we don't do. Look, what we're told to do in the Scripture are the very things we omit to do. We don't read the Scripture, we don't pray, and all these other things we're free to do. And it's a matter of Christian liberty, and I wouldn't take your liberty to vote from you. Believe you me, I'm I'm all in favor of your liberty to do as you please in that matter. But now here we become high-minded. God raises up, the Scripture teaches that God raises up authorities. He puts them down, and here it says that God raised up this wicked Pharaoh so that he could put him down and demonstrate his power. Now, he could not demonstrate the power he did with the great signs and the mighty hand by which he delivered Israel if he didn't first raise that guy up. So these things are God's things. This is the way God is. And the Scriptures teach us, don't get too worried when when you see the wicked flourishing. Don't get jealous. Don't think it's permanent. God brings the wicked up and raises them up so that he can smash them. that's what he does. And that's what he did here with Pharaoh. So be content, and be faithful, and trust God, not men, and trust the means of God and not the means of men, and you will then be enjoying your Christian life, and enjoying the Scriptures, by the way. Well, verse 18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, whom he will he hardens. Now, we don't like to see this other side of God, I suppose. We don't like to look at the side of God that hardens whom he will. But while God's having mercy on me, my friend, if you reject the word of God as you are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, he will join you in your hardness of heart, and he will harden you to destroy you. This is what God does. Now, verse 19, Thou wilt then say unto me, Now, this is an interesting figure of speech here. Thou will then say unto me. Now, the apostle can anticipate the carnal mind, of course. Thou will say unto me, why does he yet find fault? In other words, if God raises up the wicked and hardens them, they harden themselves, he hardens them more. Why can he find fault? Because they can't stop God. In other words, for who has resisted his will? And so let me make the question with full force so I don't build a straw man here and then knock it down. I'll build the strongest man that the carnal mind can build. Where does God get off? Here's the question. Where does God get off? If he raises up the wicked and he hardens them, where does he get off punishing him for that? Where does he get off Knocking them down for that because they are unable to resist his will and he's the one raising him up. So, how can he possibly judge them? Well, if you think that's a good question, wait till you hear the better answer after this brief announcement. We have the scriptures laying out for us this great question, and let me just say that this question is a normal and natural question that can occur to every mind of man. I had a friend, a very close friend, a dear brother, a courageous Christian man, who was puzzled by this scripture for many, many months and even years. And Romans 9 caught his young mind just as it catches the minds of every clear thinking, or let me just say every educated thinking person who need their thinking to be clarified, need to be corrected. How does God, if he raises this guy up, if he raised up Pharaoh to be the Pharaoh, where he was in a position to do so wickedly toward the nation of Israel, and then when Pharaoh hardened his heart, God also hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to Moses, where Pharaoh can't really resist God's will, can he? Then how does God find fault with Pharaoh? It's question. Now, here's the answer. The answer attacks your question, which is an interesting answer. And it's not a very polite answer, by the way. Maybe you think that's an erudite question and you pose it. You know, if, if you're a young fella, let's say you were a fella about my age when I received the Lord as my Savior. That was about 24. Of course, I knew about everything before that. And, you know, I'd been to college and I hung around with the professors. You know, I could drink beer with college professors by that time. And, you know, sit around and make profound observations and critique everything. Now I've limited that I just critique football, try to keep that safe. But critique everything, you know, how everything should be, how everybody's stupid, you know, everybody's dumb. That's the occupation of a young mind that's been to college. And, how everything ought to be different. Well, anyway, with that mindset, where does God get off, really, the question? Where does God get off judging and finding fault with this evil guy when he's the one God raised him up and God even hardened him? Well, we've got to take that apart rather carefully, and here's how the Holy Spirit takes the Scripture and quotes the Scripture in the Scripture. And one of the reasons I want to spend a little time on this is to look at a Bible hermeneutic, a principle of interpretation that is very often overlooked by those of us who enjoy the Bible. And that is to examine the way that the Spirit of God uses what's already written in the Word of God and applies it. And here is a quotation now out of the book of Isaiah, out of the 45th chapter. And here's the answer, nay. And the answer is, hold it, old man. Nay, but oh man. Who are you that replies against God? Literally here, who are you to speak against and judge God? You see, in the question where you say, why does God find fault, you have set yourself up as the moral judge of God. Now, for God to even explain an answer to you with that kind of point of view is to mislead you tragically. Man, when you ask that question, who do you think you are. That's really what it says here in verse 20. man, Who do you think you are to judge God? What kind of position have you just assumed in asking that stupid question to think that you can judge the moral character of God in what he does? Now the quotation from Isaiah. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now, let's go back here to verse 21. Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel not to honor? Here's a couple better questions. But the first thing is the answer. Nay, man, who are you to reply against God? Or who are you to call God into question? Shall the thing form? Say unto him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now we see that in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. Here it tells us in verse 5, I am the Lord, there is none else. This is the great chapter where God prophesies to Cyrus, and Cyrus being a prophetically predicted fellow, interestingly. Well, that's by the way. Verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God besides me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that is the setting, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is nobody else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil, which is to say, not moral evil, but I make the peace and I disturb the peace. The way to read this is I make the peace and I disturb the peace. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. The Lord intends good, but in the doing of it, he makes peace, he breaks the peace. Now, verse 9, here it is. Woe unto him that strives with his Maker. Now, when you set yourself up as a judge of God's dealings, and say, how is that right, what God does? You are striving with your maker. That is a horrible moral evil. You need to just behold what God does. You need to just learn what God does. You need to understand how sovereign God actually is. Actually, that's even a nonsensical statement. You need to observe the sovereignty of God. When we talk about God's sovereignty, that includes everything. That includes inhaling, exhaling, particles of your body holding together. It includes electrons being held in their orbit so that all things don't collapse into themselves. It includes every little thing and every large thing. Little and large are the same to God. He has perfect attention to all of it. He's not in a hurry. He's never forgetting things. All the stuff that you are, none of that is him. The possibility of misjudgment or moral failure, it never enters the heart of God. Not only does failure to judge properly never happen with God, the consideration of it never has crossed his mind, if I may be anthropomorphic. This is just you. This whole problem of why does God do this and that and what, that is all your problem. And you know what you are? Here's what you are. Woe to him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Now, a potsherd is a broken piece of pottery. And he's likening this. You're striving with your maker. Well, let these pottery fragments go fight other pottery fragments. Now, that's how significant Your thought is, and your little problem with God is, in the big scope of things. You're not just a piece of pottery. You are. God's the potter. You're the clay. You're not just a piece of pottery. You're a broken piece of pottery. You're a piece of pottery that's of no use, and that's our problem. We're a busted-up, fragmented piece of junk pottery. You say, oh, that's not good for my self-image. Who cares? God not interested in your self-image. God made you in the image and likeness of Himself, and your self-image. Who cares? Even God doesn't care about your self-image. God cares about His self-image. Now, don't start saying God's arrogant. Don't. There you go again. See? Say, well, that God is so arrogant. Don't you say that. God forbid, and actually the language here, though we don't have the same phrase, we do have the same structure of your question, why does he find fault? The structure here of these questions is that that's just as stupid as any other question that has been treated before. Be careful how you place yourself with respect to God, because he's God, and you're not. Only a broken piece of pottery needs to be told that. Now, Here it says, Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he has no hands. Listen, does the thing made say to him that makes it, What are you making? No, there's no something made to say that he's busy making it. Now you're a piece of broken pottery. You aren't even fulfilling the purpose for which you were made. And when God was forming you, you weren't busy calling him into question. He was keeping you alive and forming you in his mother's womb. And by the way, this has to do with that very thing. And it goes on in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 10, Woe to him that says unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, what have you born?" And I want you to pay attention to what that language is, by the way. Notice the father does the begetting and the mother does the bearing. There's a lot there. Just notice that. But who says to his father, who are you begetting? Nobody says that because you're already begotten by him. And nobody says to your mother, what are you bringing forth, or what have you brought forth, because that's just you. So, of course, the whole question, the whole question of the author, the whole question of the creator, the whole notion of questioning the creator is a false notion, and no answer can possibly be given without misleading you into thinking that it's valid for you to go down that path. And God doesn't go down that path with you. He doesn't go down. And he just explains this. Shall the thing formed, back to Romans 9, verse 20, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? No, it shall not even ask that question. Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto The King James says unto dishonor, but actually it doesn't mean that he creates a vessel for dishonor. He creates one vessel for honor. Doesn't he have the power to create a vessel for honorable use and another one not for honorable use? And, of course, the answer to this is as implied as the other one. The implied answer to, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus, the answer is that, God forbid even asking that question. The answer to that is totally stupid, is that you're stupid for asking the answer is absolutely no. That is the full sense of what it says here. Now, in verse 21, we have just the converse. We have an absolute certainty that the answer is yes. Does the potter have power over the clay? Yeah, he does. There's no question here tolerated. that This is a simple fact. Yes, the potter has power over the clay. That's what makes the potter the potter. That's what makes God God. And the same lump. He has one lump of clay. Can't he make one vessel for honorable use and another one not for honorable use? Absolutely so. Let me put it this way. He can make out of one set of clay a nice piece of dinnerware, in fact such a nice plate that instead of eating off of it, he hangs it on the wall to show all how beautiful it is. And he can make another one, skeet, that you just take out, put in the launcher and shoot it with a shotgun and bust it into pieces. Same clay, you can make both things. So God can make one vessel for honor and another one not to be honored. And I would just say, between those two and me personally I would prefer God made me to be the plate he hangs on the wall and not the skeet that he shoots with his shotgun, but regardless, he has power to do whatever it is he wants. Now, friends, you see, the book of Romans is written here, and it's preparing us for us to understand God's mystery concerning Israel, but the book of Romans spends a fair amount of time, God wrote these things, to get us to think correctly. And we just don't do that because we're arrogant, high-minded, self-congratulating, overrated. We shouldn't even hit the BCS poll, but that's the way it is. We overrate ourselves. We're high-minded. We're arrogant. We're boastful. And the scriptures are written to correct us and not for us to correct them. Well, we'll be back in just a moment. Now, here we're going to see a little discussion of wrath. God has wrath, Satan has wrath, man has wrath. Now I'm glad to be saved from all wrath. I'm just saved from wrath in general. God's wrath and Satan's wrath. Satan's wrath can have a short time of it, and he'll get over it, and then God will bring his wrath in. I'm saved from all of it. But there is this wrath of God. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known? Verse twenty two of Romans nine endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. Fitted to destruction. Now, here we find about vessels of wrath. And what are vessels of wrath? Well, they are those that are not vessels saved from wrath. I am no vessel of wrath. I'll tell you what, I'm a broken bunch of clay, but he saved me from the destiny of broken pieces of clay. Now, what do you do with broken pieces of clay? What are you going to do with them? Well, let me tell you that my skeet analogy is not far from wrong. All right? I think it's a good analogy if you understand trap shooting, and you understand what those clay pigeons are for. As long as a clay pigeon can get put up in the air, it serves its purpose. Its purpose is to get blown back to bits. Now, what if God willing to show, and of course, really, what if, there's no what if here, if God is willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endures with long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and he is long-suffering, he is putting up with you, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Now, this is not just what if, this is what God does. God endures with great long suffering vessels of wrath, vessels that are only fit for his wrath. And let me say now how it is. This is more detailed than you might suspect or that I might suspect. God endures with much long suffering. The vessels of wrath, and now the word fitted here really means pieced together unto destruction. So this is now pieced together. This is carrying up the idea of the broken vessel. And what if God in his long suffering is going to show his wrath on this broken vessels by piecing them together, gluing them together as it were, because they're not good for anything once the vessel is broken, really. It's not good to be a vessel again. There needs to be a whole new vessel made. That's what God does with the new nature, and that's what that's what salvation really is all about, and that's what this whole idea of the new creation is. Marvel not, you must be born again. God is not going to piece back together that broken vessel that is you. He is going to do a new thing. There is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. We've covered all that. But now, what if God, in wanting to show his wrath and make his power known? Well, why does God want to make his power known? For his own glory. That's what God wants to do. God wants to make his power known. God wants to get glory. You don't like that? Your problem. He's God. You're not. He endures with much long suffering these vessels of wrath that are going to be really pieced together for destruction. God holds a patchwork together and will visit his wrath upon these vessels that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Well, let me assure you, my friend, I am so glad when I read a passage like this to be a vessel of mercy and not a vessel of wrath. I am so glad about that. I'm so glad that God has provided a way of escape from such an end as to be a vessel that is fit to expose and to demonstrate the power of his wrath. I am so glad to be a vessel of mercy where he shows the riches of his glory that way. Now, he shows his power one way. Now, he's showing the riches of his glory, but whatever it is, God is showing himself to be God in all of this, which he had prepared unto glory. Now, I want to talk about the before prepared. Let me tell you, friends, it's the truth we chosen in Christ Jesus before this whole world scene was put together. Chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, as King James puts it, or the, the overthrow of this world, which is really what happened in Genesis 1, verse 2. I'm so glad for the time frame in which God has put me. Why do I want to enter this desperate scene here below when God has chosen me in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world? Even us, verse 24, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, God has vessels of mercy among Jews and Gentiles. As he said in Hosea, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. Now, in order for Hosea to be true, Israel has to go into a not my people stage, and they did. They went into a not my people phase where Israel, not God's people. This is similar to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Who are my mother and my brethren? They are here these that do the will of God. God's people are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, vessels of mercy. As it says in Hosea, I'll call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which is not beloved. In other words, God's going to take up other people that were called not his people, and that's the word of God going on to the Gentiles. We do not hear, see... Fully developed, and we're not studying the topic of the body of Christ here. We're studying the topic of, as it's introduced in chapter 9, of the nation of Israel. Well, what about the nation of Israel? We're getting to it. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Now, in order for Israel to not be his people and then be his people, this all has to happen, they have to be set aside. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And now we're beginning to see that during this present time there is a remnant according to grace. Well, we're not beginning to see that. We're remembering to see that. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. As Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth, had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now here is the string of Israel, as they're set aside, the Scripture teaching us that the Lord has a string in Israel. He sets them aside, but there remains a remnant that shall be saved according to grace. And God is now taking up another people. What should we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? That's what we're going to say. The Gentiles didn't follow after the righteousness of the law. They've attained a righteousness because the principle is the principle of faith. They didn't try to do law for righteousness, and they've attained a righteousness because the Gentiles embrace by grace through faith for righteousness, or as we like to put it, faith alone in Christ alone. But Israel, which followed after the principle of law for righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. That is to say, they which followed after law for righteousness did not obtain the righteousness which is in the law. Why is that? Verse 32, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. They wanted righteousness, but they sought it on the wrong principle. The Gentiles didn't want righteousness, but they found it because they found the principle of grace through faith. And let me tell you, my Jewish friend, knock it off. Embrace Christ as Savior. Trust Christ for your Savior. Knock off the principle of law for righteousness. Realize the truth of the matter, that the same thing that Abraham found, that it is faith alone for righteousness. There's a remnant of you out there and you'll be saved, and you escape being pieced together later to be visited by the wrath of God like some kind of a skeet being hit by shotgun pellets. Well, they stumbled, now it tells us in verse 32, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now what really happened to Israel? Well, what really happened to Israel is they stumbled over the stumbling stone. This harkens back to the building of the temple Whether legend or true, I know not, but the story was there that as the temple was to be built by rocks quarried elsewhere so that no tool be lifted upon a stone in the hearing of anyone. And so the rocks were quarried far away and then carried. And the story is, whether legend or true, I know not, but it's a story known to Jews of the time that on the way of moving these large rocks, building the temple to the temple site, there was a stone in the way. And if you weren't careful, you'd stumble over it. You had to go around it. And if you weren't careful, that was the stumbling stone. And they brought all the stones to the site, and now they needed to lay a cornerstone. And they went back and digged up that very stumbling stone, and it became the cornerstone of the temple. Well, it seems like it'd be true, but whatever it is, that's a story known. And as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of a fence. And whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now, you're going to either stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to believe over the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not that he's not going to impact you. You're going to be heavily impacted. You're going to either be a vessel of honor and a vessel of mercy, or you're going to be fitted to destruction based on how you're going to handle the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. I know it's Christmas and so we hardly can have a thought about our Lord Jesus Christ, because Christmas is in the way, but my Jewish friend especially I want to say to you, you gonna just stumble and fall flat on your face and be a vessel of destruction, or are you gonna give up? Or are you gonna believe in him and quit trusting in your own self and your own thoughts, and your own ideas, and your own arrogance, and your own sins? Whosoever believes in him won't be ashamed. That's what the scripture says. Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. That's the end of Romans chapter 9. That's the last verse. But let me assure you something, my friend, and I mean you well by this, though you may think me your enemy. You're going to come to shame except you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to come to a final, horrible, shameful end, and it'll be too late. Believe in him. Now, my Christian friend, let's remember not to be too arrogant because we'll be arrogant if we lean on our natural man. We need to look at the Scriptures in order to keep from walking in an arrogant way. And I'm just grateful today that I have a destiny laid down for me that's not the one I deserve or the one I thought had coming.